If your inbox is filled with emails that leave you feeling anxious, then you need to sign up for the Good Newsletter, the weekly email filled with good news. Each email is filled with the week's most hopeful headlines and reminders that there are inspiring people actively fighting to make the world a better place. Join tens of thousands of hope-filled subscribers by subscribing today at goodnewsletter.org. Hi, everyone. Before we start, we just wanted to ask you to please subscribe to our podcast. And if you like what you hear, we encourage you to rate it and leave us a review. It'll help us get stories of kindness to as many people as possible. To that point, I'd never admitted to anybody I was guilty of my crime. And so being around so much love and acceptance and light, I pulled him aside. I said, I need to tell you something. So we went off and sequestered ourselves. And he said, what's going on? And I just fell apart. And I told him about my crime. I told him I was guilty. And I told him, I can't carry this anymore. And, I, and I'm tired of being part of the problem. I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be part of the solution. You're listening to Sincerely Human, a podcast that tells stories of kindness in action from the lens of today's most inspiring humans. This is Camille. And this is Maverick. Welcome to the show. With over 2 million people serving time in one of the country's correctional facilities, the U.S. has the highest prison and jail population in the world. Each year, more than 600,000 people are released from state and federal prisons. These people are often unprepared to overcome the many obstacles they will soon face. During their time in prison, they may have cut contact with friends and family who could have otherwise supported them. Once they're out, their criminal record also makes it extremely challenging to find a job and housing. And these are some of the reasons why most end up back in prison. According to a 2018 report by the Department of Justice, five out of six state prisoners are arrested again within nine years of release. Our guest on today's episode is Brian Kelly, CEO of the Prison Entrepreneurship Program, or PEP. PEP is an organization that connects inmates with executives, entrepreneurs, and MBA students to teach them valuable business skills. Brian himself spent 22 years in prison and understands firsthand the struggles of starting again. Listening to Brian's story of resilience inspired us greatly, and we are so excited to share it with you all. Brian grew up in a small Midwestern farming community in Kansas. It's about an hour from Kansas City. My parents uh, separated and then divorced shortly after I was born. So I basically uh, was raised by a single mother um, who uh, didn't have a whole lot of skills, uh, uh, marketable skills. And so we struggled financially growing up. It's always been uh, kind of me and her against the world. And quite often the world won. But, uh, you know, she had great heart, had that working class moxie. And so we did the best that we could. As a kid, Brian was often ridiculed because of his weight. But in seventh grade, he went through a physical transformation that turned things around for him. 
I shot up in height and because I'd carried that weight, you know, I was one of the strongest kids in school. Like overnight, I became the best athlete in school. And with that came a lot of popularity, fanfare. And so just like my social blossoming happened almost overnight. And I started dating uh, a cheerleader, the head cheerleader, as a matter of fact. Uh, I was on student council. I'd always performed well in school because I liked the attention that came with that. So good grades, uh, student council, uh, best athlete, uh, popular kid, dating cheerleader. Alongside this newfound popularity, Brian and his friends also discovered alcohol. I had a lot of friends who were raiding their parents' liquor cabinets and stuff. So all this stuff seemed to be kind of tied together and soaked in alcohol. And so uh, I kind of tied those two things together and it became a practice uh, every weekend that we would raid liquor cabinets or pay somebody to buy us some alcohol and hilarity usually followed. Alcohol became a really big part of uh, what I did and who I was. And it was one of those things that I felt like I did really well. And that led, of course, to other drugs, uh, marijuana, speed, just about anything. It got to the point where, you know, any of these uh, I enjoyed, I'd probably like all of them. Uh, And so it became more and more and more different, better. Brian was offered a track scholarship coming out of high school. But he was so focused on partying that neither school nor sports interested him anymore. I just wanted to have fun. And so I lasted actually just one semester uh, because I didn't go to class. Who knew they expect you to go? I didn't go to track practice. Um, So I ended up doing what most of my family members did. Brian moved to Dallas to work in construction. Soon enough, he found himself defaulting to the party lifestyle. So I got a job managing a restaurant basically on the strip in Dallas that uh, had all the nightclubs and stuff. And that's where I was partying anyway. And so I moved over there, really got super entrenched in that. I was going to nightclubs that the Dallas Cowboys were going to and, you know, other celebrities. I thought I really arrived. It was kind of country mouse has come to the city and he thought he had arrived at last. And at one point, a friend of mine introduced me to smoking cocaine. And I, my gosh, that took my world by storm. In just a couple of months, Brian's life spiraled out of control. I had lost, I had hawked just about everything I owned. Um, I lost my job. I was about to lose my apartment. I was driving a piece of junk car. My world had fallen apart. I'd lost almost all of my friends. And I was in a desperate spiral with empty pockets. One night, with a knife in his pocket, Brian went to meet a cocaine dealer, expecting to steal the drugs from him. The meeting went horribly wrong. Um, I ended up uh, taking that man's life in a drug deal, gone bad, and um, basically went on the lam trying to hide from the criminal justice system for a few months uh, until they caught up with me, you know, arrested me and put me through the proceedings. It took about a year. Brian was sentenced to life in prison for murder. He was only 26 years old. The things that I had found life in, and now I know now I wasn't really finding life, I was more finding death, uh, but you know, uh, alcohol, drugs, sex, praise, money, anything like that, I had no, that, was, that was all stripped away from me. And so I felt naked in so many ways um, and, and, and needed to feel that way. 
there was overcrowding in the Texas system at that time. As a matter of fact, in the county jail that I was in, it was a county jail set up for 22 beds and there were 50 men in it. We were sleeping all over the floor. It was jam packed. We were in there like sardines and fighting like cats and dogs. And there was no oversight, no management. We were basically in there on our own. If you weren't at the front of the line to get any of our meals, uh, you had to fight for food. And it was just, it was out of control. It was chaos. It was an animal pen. But I was thinking to myself, what kind of environment have I put myself in? You know, I had a life sentence. I didn't know if I would ever get out of prison. I thought, this is my life. This is this is what it has resulted to. And, you know, I, I thought back and I'm like, I was a good kid. I was, you know, was smart. How did I end up here? About a year and a half into his incarceration, a friend of Brian invited him to a prison ministry called Kairos. And I said, you know, why would I want to go to that? And he said, it's four days of home-cooked meals. And I said, well, sign me up because the food here is terrible. Brian joined about 40 other inmates as part of the program. And so I actually bonded with a Lutheran preacher who had went to Kansas University, very near where I grew up. And, and we bonded just talking about Kansas and, and uh, University of Kansas. And so I'd mentioned to that point, I'd never admitted to anybody I was guilty of my crime. And so being around so much love and acceptance and light, I pulled him aside. I said, I need to tell you something. So we went off and sequestered ourselves, and he said, what's going on? And I just fell apart, and I told him about my crime. I told him I was guilty, and I told him I can't carry this anymore, and and I'm tired of being part of the problem. I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be part of the solution. And uh, and he listened to me, and, and and he looked back, and he said, Brian, he said, I am so honored that you would share that with me first. That is huge, and I get the importance of that, and I want you to hear me very clearly. I forgive you. And I fell apart. Brian broke down crying. After he gained composure, the preacher continued to give him advice. He said, you know, Brian, although I forgive you, you need to ask God to forgive you. And I promise you he will. And I told him, I said, Keith, you know, I understand, but I can't. And he said, well, why not? I don't understand. And I said, well, I know I don't deserve his forgiveness. I deserve this. I deserve worse. I'll take my medicine. And he said, wow, I didn't realize when I came here this weekend, I was going to meet somebody that was smarter than God. And I said, well, hold up. I didn't say that. And he said, sure you did. Of course, you know how to handle this better than he does. Guess what? You don't. You're never going to have any peace or purpose or joy or hope in your life until you let go. He knows this anyway. Just admit it to him. I'm like, what do I have to lose? My life is utter catastrophe. I don't know how to live. My very best thinking led to a life sentence for murder. What do I have to lose? And so I just handed it over and said, I'm I'm willing to think about life in a completely different way. What do you got? Because I've got nothing. My life is broken pieces. While in prison, Brian began reading the Bible and going to church. He went back to school and attended AA meetings. I started, you know, doing the inventories and stuff in recovery and and learning and growing and trying to think of things and lean on others in ways that I hadn't. And I started growing and I felt better kind of inside out. Even though I was still in the confines of prison, it got better. Slowly but surely, Brian earned a degree in psychology 
and became a college tutor to teach others to read. I found a lot of value in helping others. At that point, I still didn't know if I would ever get out, but I thought at least I am going to provide some value and make something out of this life even in here. And that meant a lot to me, and it kind of started feeding on itself, and and I just wanted to do more. I want to help more. I want to help more. And the more I did, uh, the more opportunities came their way to help others. Brian got another opportunity to help as a peer educator for the Prison Entrepreneurship Program, or PEP. PEP supports people inside and outside of prison by teaching them business skills. And I actually switched units to go do that and help guys with character development, help them prepare a business plan and work on their business pitch and organize uh, in-prison events where volunteers came in and interacted. And it was by far and away uh, the most perfect coupling of my experience and my passion and my willingness and desire to help others. And it would happen right before me. And I thought, you know, this is how I want to spend the rest of my time if I've got to spend it all in prison. We were at the, uh, the graduation ceremony, and it's a hugely emotional moment for everybody. But I was crying more than anybody because I was sitting there with the staff, and I remember telling God, I don't ever want to leave the company of people who are making a difference like this. Please put me around these type of people forever. Unfortunately, Brian was sent back to his old unit the next day. Despite contributing as a peer educator, he was not eligible to stay at PEP. The program was meant for inmates who were soon to be released, and Brian wasn't one of them. And I was just devastated. Why do I get to be a part of that? Why? What's going on? And so I had to go do several years just going through the grindstone in prison. You know, had a good job. I worked in a craft shop. I learned art and portraiture and things like that. So I was just doing whatever I could to survive. It wasn't until seven years later that he found an incredibly unusual way to join the program. I had just cleared the 20-year mark. I had been up for parole 12 times and denied. I got to meet with a voting member, uh, which you normally don't. And so as we were having a conversation, the conversation changed. And he was basically telling me what it was going to be like when I got out. And I'm sitting here thinking, wow, this guy is telling me I've made parole. And so at the end, He said, "Um, do you have any questions? And I said, yes, sir. I've I've got one question. And he said, what is it? And I said, will you give me parole next year? And he looked at me and said, are are you asking me to stay in prison for another year after doing 20 years? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, why? Why why would you do that? And I said, well, I'd like to go through the PEP program that I used to be a part of. Uh, But the only way I can do that is if you give me a hard release date next year, and then I'll have time to do it. And uh, and he looked into that, and he gave me exactly what I asked for. I basically bargained for another year in prison after doing 20 to go through PEP to develop a business plan I got to network with a group of hundreds of high-capacity, business-savvy volunteers with a heart to serve, and that was totally worth Uh, It it was an investment into my future. In 1994, Brian was released after spending 22 years in prison. He moved to PEP's transitional house, where recently released inmates stay. He was assigned a case manager to help him reintegrate into society. 
my case manager had done 15 years. I ended up doing almost 22. And so when I got out, he understood exactly what I was going through. He walked with me, you know, kind of hand in hand the first uh, 30, 60, 90 days. Uh, matter of fact, um, first few days out, he was driving me to parole and he stopped to get gas in the company car. And as he got out, I said, uh, will you allow me to pump gas with you? And he looked at me and he said, that's kind of weird, bro. And I go, I've never done the swipe in the keypad at a gas pump. I don't know how to do it because I had never Googled anything. I'd never sent an email, never used a debit card or a cell phone. All that stuff had come about since I was locked up. And I said, there's so much I don't know. He said, yeah, I get it. Come on, I'll show you. It's easy. And so having somebody to show you how to do these rudimentary things that we all take for granted, it's almost become second nature, is a huge hurdle to climb for our returning citizens, even me. One month after Brian's release, he was offered a job as a case manager. In this new role, he was able to help men just like him, who had just gotten out of prison. And I said, what do I know about that? I've only been out a month and I did 22 years. And they said, you're doing great. Show them what you're doing. And so that's what I did. And so for a couple of years, I helped men just like me get out and get on their feet and calm their nerves and, and give them solid pathway to walk when they got out. And it's just a continuation of what I started doing on the inside was helping men just like me. From his position as case manager, Brian worked his way up. In 2018, Brian was appointed as PEP CEO. By uniting business executives with the inmate population, PEP serves about six or 700 graduates per year. Graduates have started about 500 businesses, several of which have revenues of over a million dollars per year. We recognized a long time ago that there are a significant number of people in prison who want to turn their lives around. And we as a society should step up to the plate and make sure that they have whatever necessary to do that. We've also recognized that our men and women in prison are natural entrepreneurs. From their very survival on the street, they know a lot about business, although they may not think of it in business terms, but they know about supply chains and risk management and profit margins and marketing and reading people. And there are so many business components that they naturally get. Through it all, Brian has learned how essential community is for personal transformation. None of us get to any level of success in our lives alone. We're built for community. It takes a village. And we've got to get out of ourselves and our ego and our selfishness and or fears enough to reach out and ask for help. Ask for help from people who can help us, people who are smarter than us. You know, if you see somebody who is doing something better than you, stop and say, hey, I want to learn how to do that. Will you show me how? And you've got to have the humility to be able to do that. And when you do, amazing things happen. We are in this together. We are in this great big brotherhood of humanity. We can't do it on our own. We were never designed to do it on our own. We're in this together. We've got to be more kind with each other and help each other out. And if we do, amazing things happen.
want to get involved with PEP, you can find out more information at their website, pep.org. You can also volunteer to become an advisor and help people in prison develop their business plan. Listening to Brian's story reminded us that no matter our circumstances, we all have the capacity to grow and evolve. We really hope that Brian inspired you as much as he inspired us. Next week, we'll be bringing you another story of kindness in action. So stay tuned for that. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you all again next week.